over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Welcome to another bonus episode as part of our series, The Big Book Cover to Cover. For today's episode, we have two guests who we wanted to highlight discussing Song of Solomon. Tommy Nelson and Dr. Philip Riken have both studied, written, and taught extensively on Song of Solomon, and this episode contains back-to-back conversations with each of them. While they both agree there are dual levels to this book, each conversation seems to concentrate a little more on one. So in Michael's conversation with Tommy, you'll hear a lot more about the literal human aspect of Song of Solomon. And in his conversation with Dr. Riken, a lot more on the perspective of Christ's love for the church. We are delighted to have Tommy Nelson on the broadcast today. Tommy is the senior pastor of Denton Bible Church, where he's been about 100 years. He is the author of a lot of books, The Story of God, a Life Well Lived, The Book of Romance, and Walking on Water. Tommy speaks nationally and internationally in conferences. He's been featured on Focus on the Family, Family Life Today, Josh McDowell, for Faith and Family, and other national broadcasts. He earned his Master's of Arts in Biblical Studies, also known as an MABS from the Dallas Theological Seminary. We've been friends a long time. When did we meet? Probably in the 80s? You know, whenever I came out there to do a Song of Solomon in D.C., that is where we met and just had a super time. Out well, actually, there. we met in Dallas, but, I, you know, you were more important than me, so you don't remember me. But because we, we, we crossed paths in the seminaries, you were up with Mel Summerall, and I was in yep. Grand Prairie Bible Church for nine and a half oh, years. Yes. And uh, yes. They, you took over the reins. When did you uh, follow Mel? What year? I kind of took over in about the mid-80s. I yeah. was kind of a an assistant, then an associate, and then Mel went into more mission stuff, and I took over in the mid-80s. And the rest is history. That place the rest blew is history. Up. That place blew up. It blew up, especially when we taught a book called The Song of Solomon, <laughs> and our church went from like uh, 700 to 1,200 in six weeks. I, I remember I your comment. You said, yeah, biblical preaching. Yeah, you said it was, the, and then you taught church history and lost them all. <laughs> yeah, I know, but made some great tapes. But <laughs> no, it's been fun to watch how God has used you, and uh, so so let's talk about Song of Solomon. So we're in this corpus of literature we call wisdom literature. Some of it is right. poetic, and some of it is wisdom, and sometimes they're hard to tease out, and uh, and beyond the debates of the book and how many you know players was it a right. drama was it a song uh, let, let's just start obviously you said hey we need to teach this book for what it's really about it's not about christ's right. love for the church it's not about god's love for israel it's about a man and a woman 
You know, I heard a fellow named Tom Constable, you know Tom, uh, dear man, at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, and he was the first guy that I was taking the, the book with him, and he was overviewing the wisdom literature, and he addressed it like a chronology of a man and a woman, and I went, wow, and then I picked up a fellow named uh, Craig Glickman, yep. I remember him, and uh, he he did a book called A Song for Lovers, and uh, I want to say it was his uh, doctoral thesis, but I, I went through that with him and read it, and I thought, this is superb, and I said, this is a book that must be taught, and so basically, I just kind of took Craig Glickman's idea and filled it in. He he wrote it, I preached it, and it exploded. I would do it in little small groups for fun, and then some guy challenged me, and a guy named Jim Wrench in our church, he said, why don't you teach that from the pulpit? And I said, man, I'd empty the place. So I did, went out to West Texas and did a trial run in a little place called Groover, Texas, and they loved it. I said, if they'll love it in Groover, they'll love it in Denton. <laughs> and I, I did it, and the next week, we started packing the place out. I just and I did. I discovered this is the book for its day, because this was in the early '90s, and uh, you know, secularism had set in. And like Mr. Sartre said, uh, when there is no infinite reference point, all points are meaningless. And meaning, if you don't have a God, you don't have meaning for anything. You just got matter and mechanics. And so we were looking at marriage. And it was just a biological act between a couple of homo sapiens. That's all it was. And people were hurting. They were adrift. And they said, does anybody have a word from God on love, sex, marriage, dating, male, female, courtship, marital fidelity, what's right, what's wrong? And so Song of Solomon, I taught it, and uh, it was a, the moths came to the flame. Hendricks, our hero, mentor, professor, oft said, Howard, if, yeah. Yeah, if God gave us the gift of sex, why does the church not teach on it? And um, right. Ed Wheat, of course, was a pioneer with his books, yep. it for Pleasure and uh, Love Life yep. for Every Married Couple. And then, of course, our mutual friend Dennis Rainey with Family Life, we had a, right. a, a The Weekend to Remember, had a, a sex talk, as we referred to it. Um Things have changed, Tommy. We're in an LGBTQ complicated world, right? And uh, is this the time to reteach the Song of Solomon? Is it time to? Huh. That is really interesting. That is the first time that idea has been breached to me. I did it uh, back about oh, 14 years ago. I did the Song of Solomon once again. At Denton Bible, but it is, it's kind of a book that every generation uh, has to know about. Uh, America always had kind of a, um, you know, a Christian worldview perspective that sex outside of marriage is bad, you're not supposed to live together, you're not supposed to divorce, and that's about all we had. But there came a time when somebody, that the real fabric of marriage and the nature of sex was being challenged from the 60s on. And so, yeah, once I think that's why Dr. Wheat and um, Craig Glickman and a whole lot of guys spoke up, because people really didn't understand just what uh, sexuality was. And when you do the Song of Solomon, there's never been a woman anywhere as responsive and exciting as that woman is in the Song of Solomon. And there's never been a man more romantic and tender like that man in the Song of Solomon. And there's never been sex as explosive 
like it is in the Song of Solomon. The, the, the Song of Solomon is to sex what Romans is to sanctification. I mean, it, no one can measure to the holiness of God in Romans. You have to have the mediator of Christ. And when you read the Song of Solomon in the Bible as it stands, you're going, this is unreal. Nobody, and I said, yeah, that's the standard that God gives you. I've never been as tender a lover as that guy in the Song of Solomon. Why my wife has never been as responsive as that woman in the Song of Solomon. So it sets the standard on sexuality. It's an interesting uh, study because when when you look at the um, the language he uses, obviously we do have wisdom and poetic but the eyes hair teeth lips mouth neck, breasts uh and then you know the when she talks about him as her friend altogether lovely yeah he he is my friend she always calls him my friend and lover my friend and lover and it gives us never measured to that well but it gives us insight also on the differences between men and women and where he right. is, uh, it's not inappropriate for him to be enamored and engaged in her physical beauty. Yes. And conversely, and they're all, and they're always having, they're always having to say, "Do not arouse or awaken love until it pleases." They're always having to, to restrain themselves until the honeymoon night when the woman says, "Awake, north wind, come and make my garden breathe." <laughs> I mean, you just, and you pass out from excitement right there. <laughs> And so they're, I mean, it's not like these are two puritanical people that have no passion. They're both chomping at the proverbial bit, and they put everything on hold until the honeymoon night, and then it's exciting. And they have sex again in the book in Chapter 7, and it is uh, darn near illegal. I mean, it is uh, unhygienic and everything else. They just are exciting for each other. And so I've I had people that would come to me and they'd say, you know, this this is pie in the sky. How can anybody do that? And I said, well, there's God's standard for you. Let's let's all shoot for it. I love the uh, and again the commentators debate the author as well as some of the more critical natures of the book. But in uh, chapter five, uh, at the end of one, eat friends, drink. And drink and imbibe deeply, deeply O oh, lovers. And uh, yeah, that is the one verse that God speaks, and He says, "Enjoy, eat and drink deeply." It's a beautiful picture, and you know, it's. it's the, I recommend it. <laughs> you don't have to think about that twice. Um, no. now, now, our our friends uh, Dan Allender and Tremper Longman, they uh, have a a very, let's just say, candid translation. Of some of these passages, and, really? and we don't have to go down that road. But um, basically, I think it was Allender said, "Who wants to be known as the genitalia Bible?" Because <laughs> some of these words are more than likely not uh, how they've rendered them in our uh, sensibilities. Uh, you done any right. any any homework on that? Dusting you know, for Hebrew? I had a woman one time that taught in Hebrew University over in Jerusalem. And she said to me, she said, Gentiles have, um, have softened the book. She said, this book is more erotic than you think. Right. That's simply what she said. It's more erotic than you think. That God gave the ability of 
a man's response, a woman's response, a climax, and all the sperm and egg mentality, that's given by God. And so he's the author of this thing. And so she, she said, it's more erotic than you think that it is. I didn't ask her to go into it, but she assured me that the book is passionate. That's why they used to not let Jewish boys read it until they were a little bit older, because it is just downright arousing. Well, the language that his abdomen carved with ivory, his cheeks bed of balsam, uh, and, and some right. of the, the the navel. It's not the navel he's talking about there. The round goblet right. with wine. So, but again, who wants to be known as the genitalia? Bible. Bible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but let's go back to what Hendrix said. God gave sexual intimacy yeah. as a gift to a husband and wife uh, beyond procreation to enjoy. Yeah, and that's that's Mr. Wheat called it intended for pleasure. Mm-hmm. That it's not simply used to tell girls in England lay there and think of the queen, you know, meaning just endure it and get it over with. Uh, with the uh, Amish couples, they would put a sheet between the man and the woman with a hole in it, and that way he could penetrate the woman. But they wouldn't ruin the spiritual moment by the sensations of two bodies, and nothing could be further from the truth than that it's crazy so we have the one extreme where we try to uh take sensuality out of it entirely and then we have the other excess in our culture where this is all they live for yeah it's it's consumed in its own passion that's why i tell couples i say you know if i was an atheist and i could only tell you what i have learned through counsel I would say a number of things. Don't be bitter. I've never found happy, bitter people. Number two, I'd say to try to stay out of debt. I've never found people that were not concerned and worried and anxious by being in continual debt. And the other thing I'd tell you is don't do premarital sex. If I was an atheist, I'd say don't do premarital sex. Just on a posteriori things I have noticed, and that is when you build your marriage on eroticism and passion, there's nothing more erotic than premarital sex. It's it's off the chart. But and once you get into marriage, sexuality is something that you plan on. It doesn't erupt and explode like your R-rated movies. You know, it, it doesn't work like that. That it's something that you come in, you kind of give signals to your mate, you prepare yourself, you ready your mate by kind treatment. Uh, I uh, forget who the counselor was that said to me, the sound of my husband vacuuming his foreplay, yep. Yep. I think, but, and that's a great quote. But you you ready yourself, and so if if you build a fire on lighter fluid and it has that explosion to it, and, but it, it'll die out in time because it doesn't have substance to it. If you build a marriage on premarital sex, uh, at some point your marriage is going to have to come to a halt and you and your mate are about to learn some new things about the about the preparation of sex. And if you don't learn them by a woman being respectful and a man being tender, which are not erotic ideas, they are spiritual, um, divine ideas of love and kindness and patience and things. If you don't learn those, you're going to kill sexuality in your marriage. The same people that end up explosive insects uh, are going to end up cold and distant from each other because 
if they don't learn how to be kind, they're going to be manipulative and angry and um, judgmental and punitive to each other, and the fire is going out. So premarital sex and adultery and pornography are all lies that you can't maintain once you get into it. But once you get into marriage now, you have to begin the discipline of of uh, kindness that prepares the heart for sexuality. I can't remember precisely when our marriage, but you know, Cindy and I were part of the family life weekend to remember for 15 years. And of course, you teach this like when right. you're teaching Song of Solomon. And at the end of the day, you're either going to lie all weekend or you're going to practice these things in your marriage. Yeah. And we often say we were the greater beneficiary of the Weekend to Remember conferences than yeah. the recipient because we had to evaluate our sex life, our intimacy, our non-sexual intimacy. And, you know, one of the things we would teach couples was the problem with sex is sex and passion are not sustainable. The relationship is yes. sustainable. And sexual yes. intimacy is the icing on the cake. It's the retreat. It's the getaway. Yep. It's it's a celebration of a birthday, an anniversary, a, a great week, a great whatever. But it does not sustain yeah. the marriage. No. It's like lighter yeah. fluid. It will not sustain a fire. There's got to be substance. Now, I have said before that marriage is rigged. Sexuality is rigged. You, you know the old deal about how to catch a monkey, you know, that you let him put his hand through and grab the stuff on the other side. And then he won't turn it loose, and he can't get his fist through. Well, it's the same way in marriage. If a man's going to be domineering and harsh, if a woman's going to be contentious and disrespectful, they have grabbed hold of a sin. And if they can't turn that loose, sexuality is not going to occur. And so God has rigged it that if I'm not like Jesus, I'm not going to be an exciting lover. And if my wife is not Christ-like in her respectfulness, then she's not going to be an exciting lover to me. He's rigged it. And that's why I think Hollywood marriages uh, are a patter and a comedian's uh, uh, beginning monologue because they're jokes. They, are abs- they become jokes. When you see a couple in Hollywood get married and have this big thing, you want to go, why? yeah, I'll see you yeah, in six why? years. Why you do it? Yeah. See you in six years. Because you got these two people that are, and you know, God love them, but that's Hollywood. They're consumed with themselves, their beauty, their publicity, how they look on camera, everything, their money, their fame, everything. Hollywood is glamour, and when you take that into a marriage, it is self-destructive, and that's why whenever you see a, like a Jimmy Stewart that stayed married to the same woman all of his life, or a Jimmy Cagney that stayed married to the same woman of life. You're, you're utterly amazed. I think Fred McMurray, yeah, Paul Newman stayed yeah. married. You're yeah. just amazed at them that they did that because they had to learn self negation and servanthood. And when you don't have that going in, your passion is over. You mentioned uh, pornography a moment ago and we're, you know, I, when you and I were uh, adolescent and prepubescent, you know, to come across a yep. hard copy of a, uh, Playboy or Penthouse. I mean, that was a risky proposition. Now, oh yeah, you had to yep. work to be. Yeah, to yeah, it got to your way. And you had to find your pornography. Now it, it finds, finds you. you. And um, you know this with the oxytocin and the cortisol that the uh, overstimulation of these young men who are drinking pornography on their phones, on their computers, and they can hack around yes. it. It affects them. 
not only in their neurochemistry, but in their relationships with the opposite sex. Yeah. Nowadays, of course, I'm on the Dallas Seminary Board, and uh, whenever we have young men coming through, you don't you don't ask, do you struggle with pornography? It's like, how are you doing on this? Because any normative male, when you've got it on a smartphone, when you've got it on a computer, you know, I don't even think, Michael, I don't know if the cable stations even run risque movies anymore because it's not cost effective. Mm. You know, I mean, a, a man can get it anywhere he looks. Why do I want to go get some movie over here? I can see the grittiest stuff I want to see. And so I think that's kind of the way that pornography has gone, that men can be so, that they literally can live on it. And it ruins their marriage. It ruins their, I don't understand it, but there's something about a biochemical makeup that it'll mess a guy up. And that is my greatest fear for my grandchildren, my grandsons, is having to live in a world with that dangerous, that timber rattler that is laying out there for you. That's why I personally do not operate a computer machine. And uh, I have a, a cell phone that is held together with duct tape, and all I can do is take a call and hear what is called a voice mail on there. But I don't operate one of those things just because I don't want that thing that close to me. So what you've worked with uh, college students and young men and women for decades. Right. How do you help these guys? As you say, you're not looking for pornography. It's looking for you. How do you help them? The only way is a, a man is going to have to have a deep resolve and a deep accountability. I know at Dallas Seminary, I've got a, a couple of buddies that are good, good friends that are uh, on the faculty there. And both of their computers show up on each other. You know what I'm saying? Whatever this one does shows up on his buddy's computer. And so they are constantly keeping watch on each other. And one day he said, his buddy called him and said, uh, well, the fellow professor, he said, hey, what are you doing looking at Victoria's Secret? And he said, I'll assure you, I'm not looking at Victoria's Secret. He said, yes, you are. I got it right here. And my buddy said, the seminary prof said, wait a minute. And he, you can hear him yell at his house. Who's been looking at Victoria's Secret? <laughs> and he says his daughter yells back, well, I'm getting married here in a couple of months, and I was looking for, well, why don't you do it on your computer? Well, I thought, and so he said to his buddy, no, nah, it's my daughter. He said, okay, but they keep each other yeah. that accountable. So the only way I think, and I'm probably not an expert on this, but a, a guy is going to have to reinforce himself through, uh, what does David call it, through the, the rebukes of the godly, let them be like oil upon my head. They're going to have to be able to be rebuked by the godly. Let's help some folks that are listening to you, me right now. And again, it's a different day and age, whether they're exposed to pornography, whether they've been sexually involved, whether they have been perhaps abused, abused uh, hurt. Uh, and Yeah, one out of four girls in our church, one out of six boys has been sexually abused in our church. So, so the question is, yeah. um, help them, Tommy. Let's talk to them. You're going to be married someday. Hopefully you're going to find a godly husband, a godly wife. What would you say to them now? Because this is a different time than when you and I got married. Right. I would say that, like Mr. Sartre said, the atheist, unless there is an infinite reference point by which all things are judged, all points are meaningless, that we have to have an infinite personal God and a God who has spoken. And he has. And he has not misled us. He is not wrong. He has not been deceived. 
He is not evil toward us. And when he tells us something, it is for our good. Matter of fact, those terms, they are for your good, are mentioned in the Old Testament as far as why God gives his word. And so know that God has spoken and know that his word is best. And if he tells you a certain thing, it's because it not only corresponds to truth, but it corresponds to life. And it's best for you to do this. And so God is very simplistic that a man is made for a woman and a woman is made for a man, both mentally and physically and in all ways. And a man is not, and marriage is made for sex and sex is made for marriage. And that is the best way. And I don't think, I don't know if I've ever met married people that say, I am so glad I slept around. I am so glad that my husband and I slept with each other before marriage. Maybe they're out there, but I've never heard them that have spoken up on it. And so it just comes down to an issue of if I can trust the book of Romans to get me saved, if I can trust the book of of Ephesians to give me the understanding of the unity of the body of Christ, if I can trust Philippians to show me how to be joyful through all of life, and of Genesis to show me the planks of, of reality of creation, if I can trust this, then I can trust what the Bible has to say about sexuality. This is the will of God, Paul said, your sanctification that you abstain from fornication. And God doesn't say that over and over, which he does, because there's no temptation. He says it because, like Peter said, corruption is in the world by lust. And the the deeds of the flesh are immorality, purity, sensuality. I mean, he just deals with it right up front, verse 3. And so I would say that trust God on this, on a heavenly father, that he has spoken to you, old man, of what is good. That's the best I could tell him. And if, and if they want to go to people and ask counsel, uh, there's going to be very few successful people, none that I know of, that will say, you know, rebellion really blessed and made my life. <laughs> Tommy Nelson, great to chat with you. Will you come back and talk again? You tell me, my friend. You and I are from the same. We both watched Andy Griffith. We're from the same <laughs> deal. Me and you are fellow geniuses, and nobody else measures up to us. And that's why you and I need to be talking where people can hear us. Well, we are welcoming to the broadcast today Dr. Philip Graham Riken. He is the eighth president of the Wheaton College. But prior to that, you served, what, 10 years? How many years were you at Philadelphia 10th Press? Yeah, so I was at 10th for 15 years, and this is now my 10th year at Wheaton. Wow. That has a great legacy, both at 10th Pres and now at Wheaton. So uh, congratulations, and I pray that God continues to encourage you and use you in, in this post. It's a big chair to sit in, Dr. Riken. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, every uh, calling can be a kingdom calling, and every every place is, of service is significant, I think. Uh, but there's no doubt, pastoring a large church, providing leadership for a college or university, particularly in these days, uh, are both very challenging roles. Yes, they are, and we need good men and women who will, who will step up to that. So, on our cover-to-cover series that we're doing on In Context, the big book, we are reaching out to subject matter experts like yourself, and you've published a book called The Love of Loves in the Song of Songs. Great title, by the way. Was, it, was that yours or truth-telling? Was that marketing or yeah. you? Yeah. 
No, this was this was my title, um, Great. and I think we have. Um, I think we used it when I spoke initially taught through the book in chapel here at Wheaton, and I'm I'm pretty handy with titles, and so I, I sometimes they get changed, but I've got a pretty good batting average or maybe even fielding percentage for uh, titles that publishers are willing to go along with. Well, I'm glad you've got a knack for titles because I don't. I'm the world's worst. <laughs> So I'm always impressed when people have that gifting. Well, let's jump into the book. So first of all, one of the things we discussed in the message as well as in a discussion with Tommy Nelson, the um, book has been taught as Christ's love for the church, as uh, Yahweh's love for Israel, or that of a husband's love for his wife. And then there's a debate about the multiple persons in the uh, song. So give us Riken's take on the structure of the book, the application of it from a high level. Yeah. So first of all, I just want to say um, I wouldn't put myself forward as a subject matter expert on uh, <laughs> okay. probably on any book of the Bible. But I, I certainly love the Bible. I love teaching the Bible. I love studying the Bible. I love I love the Song of Songs. And also a lot of the things that I write on, I'm writing because I'm trying to understand them. And um so, but I, I certainly, it was a privilege to teach through the Song of Songs. A couple things about the book, just so you're right. This is one of the most contested books in the Bible, I think, in terms of just what is our overall perspective on the book. Some have treated the book very, very literally and only seen it on a human level, have not wanted to see as much of Christ's love for the church in this book. On the other hand, some have treated the book entirely symbolically as not having any earthly level meaning. And for me, it's it's really a both and. There's no doubt um, this is a human level romance. And really, we see so much of human experience of what it means to fall in love, nurture a love relationship, have conflict, work through the conflict, the important aspect of physical desire and sexual intimacy in, in a relationship that is consummated in marriage. So I mean, all of those human experiences are here, but there is also a bigger context. There is always a bigger context for human romance because the Bible in so many ways presents the love relationship that God has for his people as a love relationship, as a romantic relationship, as a relationship that ultimately uh, finds its fulfillment in the love of, of Jesus Christ for his beautiful bride, the church. So there's a sense in which the mystery of marriage in its human context is always related to the mystery of God's love for his people. So for me, it's always going to be a both and, uh, not an either or. And that, that's very much reflected in, in the way that I approach this book for teaching and, and for writing. So maybe that gets us at least started on some of those controversial and sometimes challenging issues. But, you know, when you approach this book, The Song of Songs, you have to have some inkling of what you're going to do with that issue before you can even begin understanding how to read the book. Right. So it's a very important question. Well, and, and let's take a step back. You taught this in essentially a chapel of college kids. Yes. So, you know, I preach about 10 times a year in our chapel services. You know, there are 2,000 mm -hmm. students or so. It's the whole campus community. And I do different things. I've done various topical series. Sometimes I preach through something in the Bible. This year on campus, I'm preaching through book five of the Psalms. 
But the one year I decided to do Ecclesiastes as a book, and then I, I really wanted to do the Song of Songs, and, and for a couple of reasons. One is college-age students always need a lot of help with relationships. Um, that's certainly true in our culture, but I think it's, it's always true. But one of the books we've been reading as a campus is Augustine's Confessions, and so many of the struggles, the temptations, the opportunities that Augustine had as a young man in an educational setting were all around sexual temptation, romantic relationships, um, ultimately leading to marriage. Uh, those are perennial issues for young people. But I also thought there's so many things that are confused in our culture about romance, marriage, sexuality, and we can address the issues that the culture is raising. We can answer the questions that the culture is asking. But what young people really need is the true picture of what romance is meant to be in the purposes of God. And once you see the true picture, you can recognize the counterfeits and you can start to discern what is wrong and what is going wrong in culture. And I, I just wanted to ask the question, what does a beautiful relationship look like in the eyes of God? And try to present that through biblical teaching and uh, really let that influence a lot of campus discussions and hopefully shape a vision for relationships and sexuality. Um, that, that was part of my, my purpose. And it's also a small enough book that in 10 messages, you can give pretty good coverage to the whole book. In your book, you've got some great call-outs and quotes. Uh, God's love comes with a grace so powerful that it cleanses his people's sins and makes them pure again. Help us understand that. So no matter what my uh, predilections are, my, my sins are, Christ's love is depicted in the Song of Solomon as that efficacious? Yeah. So first of all, Michael, thank you for quoting from the book, because oftentimes people ask me questions about the book, and I, I can't always remember exactly what I said. So it's just it's great I, to I have understand. that refresher and reminder. So, the, you know, the one of the reasons, so there are a couple of reasons why I believe that what you just quoted is absolutely true. And one is because of the picture that you have in the book of Jeremiah, where the people of God, the children of Israel, are depicted as spiritually unfaithful, using vocabulary words that relate to being sexually unfaithful. And at a certain point in that story, God actually files for divorce, but he loves his people so much that he doesn't go through with it. And he, even after their spiritual adultery, he refers to them as his virgin people. And I think in the context of Jeremiah, even with all the beautiful pictures you have of romance in the Old Testament, whether it's the story of Hosea and Gomer, whether it's the story of, of the, the lover and the beloved in the Song of Solomon, you can't quite fully understand how is that purity taking place in a way that's not just a fiction, that's not just trying to cover up um, something. And I, I think ultimately we get the answer to that in the gospel, where there's a cleansing through the blood of Christ that brings an absolute purity. And so when you get to the end of the story and you see Christ and his bride in the book of Revelation or in some of the New Testament epistles that are looking forward to that, it's a bride spotless. It's with, without any stain or blemish at all. And because you've been following along the story, you know that is not true to who she is in herself. That is not true to who we, we are in ourselves because we are stained by sin. There must be something 
an atonement so effective and a love so powerful that it actually brings a virginal purity. And that's the storyline of the Bible. That's the mystery of God's grace. And it gives so much hope to us because uh, we can never get to that place where we have out the possibility of, of God's redemption. And when we frankly feel not just guilty, but maybe even filthy in our sins, there's an efficacious grace for us that will bring a true spiritual purity. So there's hope for us in our relationship with God, and there's hope for us in all the things that are broken and sinful in our human relationships because of the power of God's grace. One of the striking parts about Christ's love for us as sinners is that not only does he love us unconditionally, he pursues us relentlessly. And when we think of love in the human framework, even in a monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong marriage, we are very selfish. You know, we're looking at, you know, Cindy and I are almost 40 years married, and and what does she do for me? What do I do for her? And you write, knowing exactly what kind of sinner you are, Jesus, nevertheless, was willing to fight for your love all the way to the cross. That's an interesting way to, to say it, but help us, you know, rethink this concept that love for us is about others and more than what we receive? Yeah. So Lisa and I aren't quite at 40 years, but we're getting there. And a question, you know, I'm on a college campus. I have lots of conversations with students. They ask me lots of questions, and some of them are questions they ask uh, more than once. And a question I've had quite a bit, it's probably in the top 10 questions I get, what, what, um, what regrets do you have about, and I was a student at Wheaton, Uh, what regrets do you have? As you look back, is there one thing you do over? I get questions like that. And that is such an easy question for me to answer. My biggest regret is always not loving people better. And you can see in retrospect, wow, I was so, so self-centered, you know, and, and it may well be the case as much progress as I feel I've made in a lot of areas, you know, 10 or 20 years from now, I'll say, you know, you thought you were a lot farther along than you really were. And, you know, here are examples (laughs) of that. So I think it's a lifelong journey because the one lifelong love affair we never quite abandon is our love with ourselves. Right. Right. So this idea of fighting for a relationship, I think, strongly comes through in the story of the Song of Songs. Because one of the things that happens about halfway through the book is this couple is not just in this. I'll call it smoking hot romance, but actually <laughs> it has led to marriage. There are covenant vows that have been exchanged. It's not just a, a quote unquote sister, but it is now a bride. But after that, there is a broken relationship. Part of the brokenness is manifested in a broken sexual relationship. And at a certain point, and this is so true to life, people that have been in relationships will know this. At a certain point, she is giving him the cold shoulder, and by, by the time she is ready to relent, he's saying, well, fine, if that's the way you're going to be, and then he's giving her the cold shoulder, but she, at great cost to herself, pursues him, even in dangerous city streets, she goes out to be reconciled to her lover, and to me, it's just an echo of the kind of relentless pursuing love that we see in Jesus Christ. And there are lots of, lots of images of that in the Bible. I mean, he's the shepherd that goes out to find the one lost sheep. 
there is a relentlessness, a stick to a perseverance in the love that Jesus Christ has for his people. And he pursues that all the way to the cross, all the way to death, all the way to self-sacrifice. And that's the pattern of love that he wants to live out in our relationship. So that that's a lifelong learning experience. Sadly, we, we never fully get to that selfless place of love. But Jesus never gives up on us. He's always calling us to that higher love. And I, I think by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we can see that we're making progress in, in that direction. I, I would just say to people listening, you know, this is a great way for us to pray for ourselves. Lord, help me to be more selfless, less selfish. Uh, help me to have more of the love of Christ in all my relationships. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a striking thing. And I do want to get your take on the gender confusion and some of the same-sex attraction. Because, you know, the culture, the world has so co-opted. Uh, God's design and intent for love and for marriage. And when you look at any of these other discussions, it really is a self-love first. Be true to yourself, your identity, who you really are, as opposed to, I've been made as an image bearer of God, um, either X or Y. I don't know if you addressed any of that in your chapel messages or in your book. Yeah, so in, in one sense, Every page of the book addresses those issues, because I think the more we see the true pattern, the clearer our own brokenness is, and you know, the, the clearer the brokenness of our culture is. And we're seeing not only the true pattern, but in many ways, as we see how God's grace can work in a relationship, we see the remedy as well. And I think, you know, I, I like the way that we're juxtaposing the two questions you just asked, Michael, because I think it's very easy for us to see what's wrong with other people, very easy to see what is disordered in other people's affections. The reality is that we are all deeply selfish and The way that that selfishness plays out is unique and has a different shape to it. But I think we can all relate to the experience of uh, being tempted to love the wrong things and sometimes yielding to that temptation. And I think when the more we understand that about ourselves, the greater sympathy that we can have for other people whose, whose loves are also disordered, maybe in ways that are different from ours, but in ways that are the same in this respect, that they are manifestations of the fall. Calvin said that the human heart is a factory for idols, which is partly a way of saying there's, a, there's so many wrong things to love in this world. Idolatry is fairly creative um, in one <laughs> sense of the word, and there are a lot of wrong things that we can love. At the root of it is a love for self, but sometimes that love for self is manifested in various kinds of addictive affections. Those may be to various substances. They may be to various people. There are a lot of wrong things to love. So it's not surprising that in a selfish culture, in a self-centered culture, we see lots of different manifestations of self-love. In one sense, each equally broken, but also breaking the world up and breaking relationships up in very different ways. Um, It's not surprising then that as we think about a trajectory of sexual affection, sexual identity, that that's broken in manifold and ever multiplying ways. I think that's not surprising. I think it tells us something about the human heart. Did you get any uh, feedback from your student body or others during your series where they might have taken you to task on that? Yeah, so uh, overall, feedback was was very positive on this series. And I, I think for a couple of reasons. One is we presented these biblical texts in a fresh and creative way. I asked 
the leader of our theater program to have some students present these biblical texts semi-dramatically. And what they did was there were four students, two men and two women. They either recited or sang the whole biblical text of the Song of Songs by the time we were done with the year. So they did it, you know, section by section, chapter by chapter. And from my way of thinking, they, they did it in some really wise ways. One was we did not place on the burden of any one of these students the burden of representing a single character all the way through this so that they would be so closely associated with this person or that person. There was a kind of flexibility. That's why I say it was presented semi-dramatically. It wasn't presented as a, as a play where, you know, each person follows through with particular lines for particular characters. The other thing they did was they presented a fair amount of the material musically, particularly when there was a refrain in the text, when the daughters of Jerusalem, for example, were commenting mm -hmm. on the situation. Mm -hmm. And I think the whole setting of this poetry very likely was a musical setting. These were the love songs that were sung in ancient Israel. This was the soundtrack for uh, wedding celebrations in ancient Israel. Right. And a simple presentation with a guitar in a somewhat rustic setting, it really made the biblical text come to life. When the Bible comes to life, it carries its own beauty and power. And I think our student body had that experience with these biblical texts. The other thing is that I think helped with all of this is I wanted to put all of us at the foot of the cross in our sexual brokenness and our need for God's healing work. And I think that came through in the messages so that people didn't feel called out and condemned, even though they felt perhaps, I think hopefully sometimes exposed I, I pray that the Holy Spirit does that through my teaching of the Bible, where you're brought into the biblical text, and then you have a, a shock of recognition where you say, I am exactly the sinner that's being described right now. But also in a context where there is always gospel hope. I mean, part of my commitment as a preacher and as a teacher of the Bible, any part of the Bible that I am teaching or preaching, I want to show our need for forgiveness and our great need for eternal hope. And I wanna provide a remedy for that in the forgiveness of sins through the death of Jesus Christ and the hope of eternal life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In one way or another, I, I try to be kind of a one message preacher in one sense that that's always the message. But I also try to be a fresh preacher in that I am proclaiming the gospel the way that this that only this biblical text can pre present the gospel in quite this way. So to do that, you need to get into the details of the biblical text, but you also need to have an eye for where this text fits in with, uh, with redemptive history, how this text presents Jesus Christ, the gospel according to this text, which is the gospel presented in a way that no other text quite can present it the way that this text can. Uh, now, I mean, I, I, fall, I fall short of that, in various ways, every time I preach, right. and people that hear me preach right. more often will know how far short I fall of that. But that's what I'm striving for. Well, and then to add to that is, you know, and I underscore what you've just shared, but to every audience, which is a unique context, and in your case, uh, largely college age ears, you know, in my case, a cross population in a local church. And then, of course, in, in cultural context, I mean, we're so far removed. You, you mentioned Augustine's Confessions. You know, we're so far removed from from that context to bridge that gap and you know this this technological 
giant leap we have pornography availability virtual relationships uh, snapchat uh, the way people conduct a interpersonal relationship whether it's you know immoral or moral it's just it is such a haphazard way and yet we come back said this is the word of god and it's reliable and you can trust him and you can trust him at his word i mean it's it's an ever moving target in some respect but our our baseline of course being the text is what keeps us true right Absolutely. And I think, uh, and we can really trust the Bible to do that and trust the Bible to connect with our culture in all the ways that it needs to. So I think one thing with the Song of Songs specifically, one of the things that happens when the biblical pattern of a love relationship that leads to covenant marriage and is consummated in sexual intimacy, when that is presented in a beautiful biblical way, there is something in the God-honoring heart that says, that's what I want. Mm. That's what I desire. Mm-hmm. I don't want to settle for anything less than that. Mm-hmm. And I think the, I mean, you mentioned the issue of pornography. There's nothing, in one sense, there's nothing specific in the Bible on, on pornography. But here's, here's one thing that I think is hugely helpful in the Song of Songs. And that is, this is obviously erotic poetry that is meant to stimulate, in one sense, sexual desire. But it doesn't cross the line over into what is pornographic. So you're in, in, in a couple of different places in the Song of Songs. You are, in effect, brought to the door of the honeymoon yes. chamber, but then, then the door is closed. So it helps you get a sense for where the line is, for how important it is to protect purity, this is a book that is giving us principles that we can apply to so many issues in our culture, and that's that's one example. What's the the one place where most of us think this is God speaking in chapter 5, 1, um, when, when he said, lovers drink. Eat, friends, the, drink, and be drunk with love. Yes, yes. So, and this is one, I mean, you've got so many interpretive questions you've got to answer. Um, I think this is probably close to right. The woman says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Now, by the way, it's crucially important for us to understand that this is already after vows of covenant matrimony have been made. So that, that's crucial to understand in this passage. So what is his response? I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And I'll finish the verse in a minute, but I'll just make this comment. So there's, there's a dialogue here. There's an invitation that the woman gives. There's a response that the man gives. There's an invitation from the wife and a response from the husband. There is language here about tasting, enjoying, delighting in, but it is all distanced a little bit from the narrowly literal with this, these evocative images of spices and of uh, sweet Aroma. food that you would taste and consume. So there's a, there is a chastity in these verses. So then you have a shift of the language. Somebody is saying, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Maybe that is God himself speaking. In one sense, mm-hmm. it is because this is the vocabulary of the Holy Spirit. But I also think in the context of the Song of Songs, you have something that you often find in dramatic love poetry, and that is 
there are other people in the scene that are commenting on what's happening. I mean, think of, I, I remember when I first started reading Greek tragedy, what is this chorus? Like, like who are these, uh, you know, people that are commenting, you don't have that in a kind of literal drama that you would see on television, but you see it. It's like what you have in a musical, you have the chorus and that's so often the case when you have romantic literature worldwide, it's often set to music you often have the community wanting to celebrate and not just the in individual lovers. And that's what you have here. And they are giving a permission and a blessing to drink deeply from the nectar of love mm -hmm. in the context of this love relationship. I mean, it's such a beautiful passage. There are so many, when you really get into the imagery of the song of songs, so beautiful. And it has the literary beauty measures up to the beauty of the romance itself, and even to the divine human romance that, that is part of the bigger, the bigger story here. So the scripture opens with a wedding, and we have story and narrative. It opens and with a blind. It opens with a blind date. Blind date, actually, to be more specific. <laughs> uh, you know, but there's because, only one option. <laughs> yeah, well, and and God says, here's you know, here she is, here's the woman, and. Right. Immediately, what do you have? You have love poetry. You have the first truly poetic. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, yeah. So then we have the theology. We have success and failure. We have the Song of Songs. And then we have, by the time the New Testament, of course, we get Paul's instructions in Ephesians. We get the crescendo in Revelation. So I often say the Bible opens and closes with a wedding and has success and sin and failure and joy all depicted in the middle. And yet the culmination of this imagery is Christ's love for his church, us being the bride. And then you write in your book, your Savior has set you as a seal upon his heart. His love will never leave you or forsake you. So as you mentioned, and we could also talk about Gomer and Hosea and, you know, this tenacity of his love. I don't want to make it, you know, anthropomorphic, but God's love, in a sense, is relentless toward his his people. And yet, to go back to pornography for a moment, it's insatiable, uh, which is why these, you know, young men in particular, for example, can get, you know, spend hours when God's design is not just the sexual intimacy aspect, but there's a there's a satiable a sanctity to this wonderful thing because it's a relationship that transcends the sexual intercourse, the, the enjoyment we have of one another. But we're, we're intimate. We're naked. We're not ashamed. It's the one person on the planet whom I can enjoy this expression with is Cindy, my wife. And, um, and again, back to your quote, you know, he has set his seal upon you. He will never leave you or forsake you. I mean, help us a little more with that. Yeah, well, Zen, I mean, I just agree with everything you said, Michael. Let me just make this comment. So one of the things you did did so helpfully there is traced the biblical theological arc, the redemptive narrative, the big story, the love story of all love stories, which runs all the way through the Bible from beginning to end, runs all the way through human history from the beginning until forever. One of the things that occurred to me, and I, I'm sure I have a line about this somewhere in the book, as I was thinking about that narrative arc, is what happens in the gospel in that story is all of a sudden the groom walks into the room. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, in fact, we were looking in, in chapel on Monday here at Wheaton about the disciples of John are kind of grumpy because here they're having all these ascetic practices, they're fasting, and the disciples of Jesus aren't doing any of that. 
they're, they're kind of grumpy about it. And Jesus says, well, of course not. I'm here. The bridegroom is here. What do you do when the bridegroom is there? It's a time to celebrate. And mm-hmm. so that's the dramatic turning point in this love story is when the groom actually enters the story in the Gospels. And then you're, you're on, you're, you've got an inflection point that leads you to the you know, climactic wedding supper of the Lamb in, in the book of Revelation. So God has been working out this beautiful story all along the way. And I am not at all hesitant. I'm, you know, as I think about kind of my interpretive uh, sensibilities, my hermeneutics, if you want to use a fancy word for it, I am more of a maximalist than a minimalist. I'm not a person to say, well, you know, it's only a handful of places where you can be sure you see Christ in the Old Testament. I think you see him in a lot of places, but the way that you see him is not by making superficial connections. It's actually by getting more deeply into the biblical text, seeing as what is going on on there. And, you know, the, the passage you've read, which is such a beautiful passage, I've preached this on occasion at weddings, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. I mean, you want to get into the details of that. What is a seal? It's this insignia, often perhaps, you know, impressed in a clay object of some sort, which indicates ownership in the ancient world. It's the chip on your credit card, which is a unique, has a unique signature, which indicates that it's you and you only. And that's the seal of love that God has placed on us. Maybe another analogy is the unique exchange of a wedding ring. When I see the wedding ring on Lisa's finger that I gave to her, I know that there's a mutual possession there. That's another analogy from our own culture that you know comes close, I think, to some of the biblical language here. And if there's any doubt, at, at the end of that verse, where Solomon, or you might say the Solomon of the Song of Solomon, is writing and talking about how jealous this love is, it's strong as death, it's the very flame of the Lord. There is something divine about this love. And I think that opens a door for us to see not just that this is a human love, which is divinely inspired and divinely blessed, but when you really think about what love is, absolutely as strong as death, ultimately it is only a divine love. It is only a divine love that can conquer death. And so I I think this is one of those places where you have a, a signpost in the Old Testament pointing you to the fullness of the love of God that you understand in a more complete way when you come to see it in Jesus Christ. And it requires death. I mean, strong as death, and it's going to require the death of the Savior for us to experience that love. So maybe a bridge too far, but you talked about seal, and of course my mind runs to Ephesians 1, Sfragizo, that the Holy Spirit is represented as a seal, uh, that this permanent indwelling, this uh, deposit of redemption cannot be broken. Is that too far of a, a bridge too far? Yeah, I don't think it's a bridge too far, but I think it is. It's a slightly different context. So the seal in, in Ephesians has a, is also a legal context, but it's not specifically a marriage context. It's Got more, it. uh, you know, the deposit, the down payment, it's an exchange of property. So what's similar about it is the sense of possession, of security, of identity, of personal identification that God makes with his people because of what a seal means. All of that meaning is there, but it's a little bit different context. And so it has, a, it has some different implications sure. and maybe some different applications. But there's a connection there because it's all coming out of the sealing context of the Old Testament. Okay. 
final takeaway for our friends. Uh, what's the Song of Solomon? What's Phil Riken's big takeaway? Well, first of all, my big takeaway on any book of the Bible is give yourself a chance to fall in love with this book and understand the gospel. And I think particularly with the Song of Songs, but in a way it would be true of any book of the Bible, fall into love with Jesus for the first time or in a fresh way, fall in love with him all over again through the pages of, of this text. I will also say, I think one of the things that partly draws me to the um, Song of Solomon, you know, I, I've written actually a couple of different books that um, have the word love in the title or relate to love. I really enjoyed working through 1 Corinthians 13 and thinking about how that reflects the love of Jesus Christ. What does it tell you that I've written several books about love? Not that I'm a subject matter <laughs> expert, actually, Michael. But this is an area where I, I know, oh, this I really I need to really work on this. So I was talking, who was I talking to? Somebody that's written, oh, I was talking to Brian Chapel. I, I love Brian Chapel's ministry. Uh, his book on preaching is probably the main text on preaching, his book on Christ-centered preaching, and we were kind of kidding around. And I realized, oh, actually, what this means, Brian, is that you really realize you really need to work on your preaching. That's why you've done this. Exactly. Now, actually, Brian's a brilliant preacher, so it's a little bit of uh, tongue-in-cheek. But anyway, I think we all need you know, more of the love of Jesus in our lives, and the Song no of question. Solomon is a great place to get a refreshing dose of it. Dr. Philip Riken, president of Wheaton College and author of the new book, The Love of Loves in the Song of Songs. Great title by Crossway Publishers. Uh, Phil, thanks for your time. Thanks for your contribution. And I look forward to chatting again sometime in the future. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.